if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. On AM 1420, The Answer. Yes, indeed it is, and a good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Past 10 o'clock, thanks for being with us. I had requests for a little bit more of the Corey Lewandowski testimony yesterday. I gave you in full, well, let me re- let me stop there, last night on the Larry Elder Show. I didn't give it to this audience. I didn't give it to you, my audience. Uh, but last night when I did the Larry Elder Show, I gave you in full the opening statement of the ranking member of the uh, Judiciary Committee for the Republican Party, which is, of course, uh, Doug Collins from Georgia. Uh, his his statement about the entirety of this hearing and this continuation of the witch hunt, which has already been disproven, was spot on. It was beautiful. It was brilliant. I also gave a portion of Corey Lewandowski's uh, testimony uh, before, uh, in response, rather, to several of the uh, Democratic questioners, and a little bit from Jim Jordan as well. But what I did not give was Corey Lewandowski's opening statement, which I can tell you was absolutely brilliant. Uh, dare I dare I say sublime. Corey Lewandowski, and I said this at the beginning, and I'll say it again now, if I'm ever on trial for my life, I want this guy in my corner. This guy is loyal because not of his loyalty to the president, mind you, loyal to the country, loyal to the right cause here. Loyal to the fact that Donald Trump was being railroaded by every demon rat in Congress, every demon rat in the media, and they are all one and the same, truthfully. Um, and he was being railroaded, and, and Corey Lewandowski would not have it because it's you know defending the executive branch is as important as defending the man sitting in it and occupying it right now. And that's what he does, because it's the right thing for the country. So I want you to listen, and this is almost by request, to a little bit of Corey Lewandowski's opening statement yesterday to the Jerry Nadler-led Senate, or excuse me, House Judiciary Committee hearing on impeachment investigation. You swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief, so help you God. Let the record show that the witness is answered in the affirmative. Thank you, and please be seated. Please note that your written statement will be entered into the record in its entirety. Accordingly, I ask that you summarize your testimony in five minutes. To help you stay within that time, there's a timing light on your table. When the light switches from green to yellow... Yada, 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 yada. Get on with it, will you please? Chairman Nadler, Ranking Member Collins, and members of the committee, good afternoon. 
I'd like to start off by expressing my hope that today's hearing will be productive in revealing the truth, both to the committee and to the American people. For the record, and as you likely know, I have already testified before Congress on three separate occasions. I sat at length with the staff of the special counsel's office. There, too, my time and answers were given freely and without hesitation. I think in one form or another, I have already answered questions for well over 20 hours. So now here I am before the House Judiciary Committee to answer the same questions again. Just last week, this committee, over the objections of the minority, unilaterally changed the rules to make this an impeachment proceeding, which is very unfair. However, in the spirit of cooperation, I am prepared to move forward today. I'd like to start by recounting the events that brought us to this point. My story of joining the Trump campaign, working through a historic election, and continuing to have the privilege to be part of the greatest political movement in our nation's history. I present this summary in the interest of truth and transparency to the American people, the very same reason and rationale that this committee offers as the basis for today's hearing. Growing up in a blue-collar, single-parent family in Lowell, Massachusetts, I learned the value of hard work. And that work ethic helped me to put myself through both college and graduate school. Prior to becoming a congressional staffer, and ultimately a certified peace officer in the state of New Hampshire. However, the world of politics was always a passion. And in January of 2015, Donald J. Trump, then a private citizen, hired me to help him explore a possible run for the presidency. It was an honor and a privilege to play a small part of such a historic campaign. The campaign started as a small group of individuals helping Mr. Trump to make the decision in June of 2015 to ride down the golden escalator and seek the Republican nomination for presidency of the United States. For more than a year, I served as campaign manager to then-candidate Trump in his historic campaign, where I led a lean and dedicated operation that succeeded in helping him capture the Republican nomination. My job was simple. Provide Mr. Trump with my best advice, spend his money like it was my own, and give him the support he needed to win. I also set long-term objectives and managed day-to-day decisions. I had the privilege, and it was a privilege, of helping transform the Trump campaign from a dedicated but small makeshift organization to a historical and unprecedented political juggernaut. And I am proud to say Mr. Trump won 38 primaries and caucuses and received more votes than any candidate in the history of the Republican Party, all while being outspent most of the way. The historic campaign helped Mr. Trump secure the Republican nomination to ultimately the presidency of the United States. However, since Election Day, whether it was bad actors at the FBI and the intelligence community or lies coming from members of the current House majority that there was evidence of collusion, the American people continue to be sold a false narrative with the purpose of undermining the legitimacy of the 2016 election results. But no matter the size, campaigns are not always the most efficient organizations. And while you run in single congressional districts, just imagine what it's like to lead a national campaign that spans all 50 states of the union. During my time as campaign manager, there were competing interests for the candidate's time, and a sea of ideas, some laudable, some sound, a few not so much, many of which were dismissed out of hand. Others were passed on to staffers to be handled. I also received hundreds of thousands of emails, some days with as many as a thousand emails, and unlike Hillary Clinton, I don't think I ever deleted any of those. Many of them were responded to with either one-word answers or forwarded to other staffers for additional follow-up. Can I, can I pause that just for a second? Because we should hear it again. Did I mention he was trolling Democrats? 
Did I mention that he was trolling them not just in the question and answer sessions, but right from the very beginning? As he details the Trump campaign, his role, and obviously correctly points out, I have testified and answered your questions as you look for some reason to impeach this man or to to um, uh, essentially uh, invalidate his election in the first place. I've answered 20-some hours worth of questions. In addition to that, he trolls them on Hillary. All 50 states of the union, during my time as campaign manager, there were competing interests for the candidate's time and a sea of ideas, some laudable, some sound, a few not so much, many of which were dismissed out of hand. Others were passed on to staffers to be handled. I also received hundreds of thousands of emails, some days with as many as a thousand emails. And unlike Hillary Clinton, I don't think I ever deleted any of those. (laughs) I love that. Many of them were responded to with either one-word answers or forwarded to other staffers for additional follow-up. But throughout it all, and to the best of my recollection, I don't ever recall having any conversations with foreign entities, let alone any who were offering to help to manipulate the outcome of an election. As I've said publicly many times, anyone who attempted to illegally impact the outcome of an election should spend the rest of their life in jail. And let me stress this fact. During the 2016 election cycle, Mr. Trump held no elected position. He was not a government official. Rather, the Obama-Biden administration and the intelligence community, overseen by James Clapper, Jim Comey, and John Brennan, had the responsibility to the American people to ensure the integrity of the 2016 election. I will leave it to this committee and the American public to decide how successful or not they were in doing their jobs. Regardless, as the special counsel determined, there was no conspiracy or collusion between the Trump campaign and any foreign governments, either on my watch or afterwards. Not surprisingly, after the Mueller report was made public, interest in the fake Russia collusion narrative has fallen apart. In conclusion, and it's sad to say, this country has spent over three years and 40 million taxpayer dollars on these investigations, and it's now clear that the investigation was populated by many Trump haters who had their own agenda to take down a duly elected President of the United States. As for actual collusion or conspiracy, there was none. What there has been, however, is harassment of this president from the day he won the election. We as a nation would be better served if elected officials like yourself concentrated your efforts to combat the true crises facing our country, as opposed to going down rabbit holes like this hearing. Instead of focusing on petty and personal politics, the committee focused on solving the challenges of this generation. Imagine how many people we could help, or how many lives we could save. As I stated earlier, I have voluntarily appeared in front of Congress on three separate occasions and spoken to members of the special counsel's office for multiple hours. I will continue to be forthright forthright and cooperative, and I will be as sincere in my answers as this committee is in its questions. That was an absolutely brilliant... Yes, 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 I can indeed. Digging it, am I? Um, that was a brilliant takedown of the entirety of the hearing before it ever began. And then he went, spent five minutes trolling the Democrats some more. I've already answered 20 hours worth of your questions. You're going to ask the same questions again. I'm going to give you the same answers. And the more you get angry, the more I'm going to troll you. He did so 
with uh, uh, an expertise side that is that is rarely seen. He is a born politician. I know he has not held uh, elected office before, but hopefully that will change soon. Corey Lewandowski is going to be running for Senate, the Senate in New Hampshire. All right, going to get a quick time out here. It's 1019. i got a great guest coming up at 1035. I'm going to lay the groundwork for that right here on AM 1420, The Answer. It's the Bob France Authority here. On AM 1420, The Answer. Couple of uh, couple of quickies real quick here before I talk about the 1035 guest and the story we're going to discuss. I, I can't believe this is real, but it is. Merriam-Webster, you know who they are, right? The dictionary folks, one of the uh, best-known dictionary uh, 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 publishers. Merriam-Webster has tweeted as of last night, no, yesterday morning at 1128, sorry. They have changed, or added rather, to their dictionary the word they, which as we all know is a plural pronoun. It is a plural pronoun referring to a group of two or more, or otherwise stated, a group of more than one of something. It is a plural pronoun, and they are changing it, or they are adding it, as a non-binary pronoun to refer to one individual who does not identify as male or female. (laughs) I'm just sitting here... Maybe it's the former English teacher in me. You can't do that. I don't care what book you're publishing, Merriam-Webster. You cannot just rewrite the English language and the rules of, of English grammar. They and their are plural pronouns. One a plural pronoun, one a plural possessive pronoun. You cannot just change it to meet the psychological delusion of a small percentage of this country or this world. You can't just change that. Pronouns are parts of speech, and they have very defined, uh, well, that's repetitive to say defined definition, but they have very defined usage in our language. A person cannot be a they. A person cannot be a them. A person cannot be a there. A person is a he or a she or a him or a her. That's it. There is no other option. The LGBTQXYZ ampersand exclamation point hashtag question mark mafia is trying to change everything about our culture now, including our language. Simply impossible. In another nod to political correctness, in another nod to the LGBTQ mafia dictating how we must live our lives in celebration of theirs, simply can not stand. I'll, uh, I'll expect responses to Merriam-Webster from anybody who has seen this on Twitter. I just gave mine, and I kind of, online too, I mean, I literally tweeted a reply to them, uh, very similar to what I just ranted to you about. If you are so inclined, please find that tweet. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at France Radio, F-R-A-N-T-Z Radio, also Radio Done Right. That's the nickname. 
Uh, find that tweet from Merriam-Webster and tweet your own response, please. All right, um, Trayvon Martin. The name evokes hostility uh, in a lot of different directions. It is widely considered, along with the Michael Brown situation in Ferguson, Missouri, those two cases widely regarded as the uh, beginning of the worst racial divide we have had in this country since the Civil Rights Act, since Jim Crow, quite frankly. Uh, Trayvon Martin and Michael Michael Brown. Very, very different situations, but not in the eyes of those with, who are politically motivated. In those, the eyes of those who are politically and racially motivated, these are two black, young black people who were killed by white people. Never mind the fact that one of them was a cop who was defending himself against Michael Brown's attack, and the other one isn't a white guy. He's a Hispanic named George Zimmerman who became white for the purposes of racial strife in this country. Well, the Trayvon Martin situation has essentially created, along with the Michael Brown story, the racial division we live with today. There is a new film and book out called The Trayvon Martin Hoax, unmasking the witness fraud that divided America. We're going to talk with the author of the book and the filmmaker who produced this coming up after the bottom of the hour news. But before we get to the bottom of the hour news, the trailer. My message is to the parents of Trayvon Martin. You know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. The shooting death of Trayvon Martin was ground zero for racial division in America. Trayvon Martin was killed for wearing a hoodie, uh, quite frankly. I decided to produce a film on how the case affects American politics to this day. It had started as a self-defense case. But then, out of the blue, they found Trayvon's girlfriend. She is a minor child. This phone witness led to the most racially divisive trial since O.J. The girlfriend had written Trayvon's mother a letter. I put it in a box. Did you sign it at the bottom? Yes. What name did you use? Diamond Eugene. My investigation started with Trayvon's 750-page cell phone records. I made a shocking discovery. Trayvon did have a girlfriend named Diamond Eugene, but she wasn't the witness at the trial. To understand what really happened, I knew I had to find the real diamond. My research took me to the back alleys of Little Haiti. Maybe they can help me find diamond. Yeah, maybe they To the high schools of Miami Gardens. To Florida's capital city of Tallahassee. And finally, to Sanford, Florida where I got to know George Zimmerman. For the first time, he revealed Trayvon's last words. I heard him say, tell Mama Alicia I'm sorry. Then I found a tape where Rachel confessed to prosecutors. Real guilty. Why do you feel real guilty? I ain't know about huh? I ain't know about it. And then, finally, I found Trayvon's real girlfriend, Diamond Eugene. I was then able to reconstruct the shocking story of what really happened the month before and after the shooting. I used forensic handwriting analysis and even DNA to confirm what I had uncovered. That Diamond was switched for a fake witness in a murder trial in the most stunning hoax in American judicial history. A hoax whose consequences have been tragic beyond anyone's imagination. telling this story, 
My hope is to show how politicians and the media have pulled us apart when our shared aspirations have always been to come together as one nation. The book is called The Trayvon Hoax, the movie as well. The Trayvon Hoax, Unmasking the Witness Fraud that Divided America. The author and filmmaker Joel Gilbert joins me next. Would it surprise you as much as it surprised me? To learn that it has been seven years, seven and a half years, since the death of Trayvon Martin. That is, I, you know, just in preparing for this interview, I, I didn't realize it was that long ago. It was February of 2012. As I mentioned in the last segment leading up to the newscast, the death of Trayvon Martin and the death of Michael Brown, um, a couple of years apart, were easily the two biggest instigators, if you will, of the racial strife, <clears throat> the racial division that we continue to deal with in this country today. Uh, President Obama assured us of that with his response to both. But um, nonetheless, it was 2012 with Trayvon Martin that this entire thing got started. Now, I remember being on the air during that entire period of time, watching that entire episode unfold, uh, listening to the testimony, listening to the allegations, listening to the attorneys, finding out about the lies, finding out about what really happened, the assault, and everything else that led up to it. But what I didn't know... And apparently nobody else did until this book came out, which is coming out now in this uh, film, that there was a giant hoax hoax being perpetrated by um, somebody close to Trayvon Martin. And whether it was with or without the knowledge of the attorneys in the case is a question I guess we'll ask the filmmaker, but a phony witness Rachel Gentile was supposedly the girlfriend of Trayvon Martin who was on the phone with him, and it turns out, well... Not so much. Joining us now is Joel Gilbert. He is the author of the new book, The Trayvon Hoax, Unmasking the Witness Fraud that Divided America. It is also a film, which I played the trailer for you, uh, the audio portion of it anyway, just moments ago. And Joel, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. How are you, sir? Hey, great to be back. Thanks for having me today. Good to have you. Um, this is a pretty incredible thing. Um, I, I, I read a couple of the, not reviews, well, I guess the reviews, but articles discussing the um, subject matter of your film and your book, and I am simply blown away. Uh, before we get into the details of the, the hoax, the, the witness hoax in particular, tell me about your motivation. What made you look into this? How long have you been working on this? It's been over seven years since the Martin death. Well, don't forget, it's only been six years since the trial. And okay. that uh, trial led directly to the Ferguson effect. If there was no Skittles and iced tea, there would have been no hands up, don't shoot. And that led to the Freddie Gray. So the, the whole thing feels like it's yesterday because of the racial division that the media and the Democrat Party still sow today based on these, these race hoaxes. And this was ground zero. The Trayvon Martin case, ground zero for all the modern era of fake news and race hoaxes. It all started on the Trayvon Martin case. Now, I started looking into it because I was kind of fascinated by Andrew Gillum, who was running for governor, of course, of uh, Florida. He Mm -hmm. came out of nowhere and almost won. And I noticed that his entire campaign was race-based. He kept talking about Trayvon Martin, and Trayvon Martin was killed because he was wearing a hoodie. And I said, I'm going to investigate this case that he based his campaign on. And uh, right away, I remembered that 
uh, how this thing, the Trayvon Martin uh, trial came about. If people remember, the uh, police in Sanford investigated everything, eyewitnesses, 911 tapes, physical evidence. After two weeks, they said, self-defense, see you later. This was a pure self-defense case, not stand your ground, nothing. A week later, the family attorney, Benjamin Crump, held a press conference, and he played an audio tape that he said where he interviewed Trayvon's 16-year-old girlfriend named Diamond Eugene, and she contradicted much of the evidence. So only based on this phone call, Obama got on board. If I had a son, he looked like Trayvon. LeBron James got on board. The NBA, they appointed a special prosecutor. Two weeks later, Zimmerman is arrested, and the arrest warrant is based on an interview that the prosecutors did a couple weeks later with Rachel Gentel. Rachel Gentel came to the, you know, to the interview and said, I'm Diamond Eugene. That's a name that I use from time to time. That's my nickname. She was 18. So her voice sounded nothing like the girl on the phone with uh, Crump. So I decided I'm going to find out who that original girlfriend was. I'm going to find Diamond Eugene. I want to find out why she was substituted for Rachel Gentel and uh, wh who knew about this hoax. And that's how I, I just kind of got hooked, and I said, if I can get all these answers, maybe we can turn around this ridiculous racial division in the country because I can show that it was all based on a hoax witness and a completely fake narrative. So many layers to this. Joel Gilbert, author and filmmaker, The Trayvon Hoax, unmasking the witness fraud that divided America. Let's... Um, Let's let's talk about Rachel Gentile. Um, she, as you pointed out, was the one who came forward and claimed that she was Diamond, and uh, she was a key witness in this trial. What what was her motivation to fake uh, uh, being the girlfriend that that Trayvon was speaking to? And did you discover, Joel, that Diamond allowed this to happen? Was this uh, was her with her with her? See, I think I'm losing you there. Oh, there you go. We got you now. We got you now. Sorry about that. Did you hear the question, or should I repeat? Uh, I, I did hear the question. There's a couple uh, things going on here. Uh, by the way, anyone, if you want to see the movie trailer, all the information, thetrayvonhoax.com, and, of course, both the film and book are on Amazon as well. You can also live stream it if you go to uh, 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 Vimeo, and you can see the link also on my Twitter Uh what happened is this girl, Diamond Eugene, was on the phone with Trayvon. She was a legitimate witness to hearing something. And based on what she knew, which was likely that Trayvon premeditated the attack on Zimmerman, she decided to disappear. She tried very, very hard to disappear. And I show through the phone records that I dug up, I got all the phone records of Diamond, I got the phone records of Trayvon, I got all the information from the court. And this is what's so shocking is that the media could have gotten this information, too. It wasn't that I got information no one else could get. I just went and read it and put it together. And uh, Diamond was pressured day and night by Trayvon's friends. His, he had some scary kind of gangster friends were calling and texting her nonstop. Trayvon's parents, Trayvon, uh, the Martin family attorney, Crump, ABC's Matt Gutman, they were all pressuring her to come forward, and she kept refusing, refusing. Finally, after three weeks, they must have told her something to get her to come forward, and she only agreed to a phone interview. And in that phone interview, as I show in the film, she just answered in the affirmative. Everything that Crump asked her, she said, yes, yes, Mr. Crump. She repeated back to Crump the Skittles and iced tea story. She said, oh, yeah, he wasn't doing anything. He was just getting some candy. So she really avoided telling the truth of what she really knew. She just repeated back what 
what she felt she had to repeat back. And then they asked her to come and talk to prosecutors, essentially to lie under oath. Uh, and she refused to do that. She bailed out. And uh, Rachel Gentile was substituted for her. And Rachel came forward and claimed to be Diamond Eugene. It was ridiculous on the face of it. Even in the first interview with prosecutors, she, she said, I lied about my name, I lied about my age, I lied about going to the hospital, and her story kept changing. So the prosecutors, why they didn't stop this nonsense right there is part of the, the problem, uh, because the prosecutors actually withheld evidence from the defense until just before the trial, which is why they didn't figure out you know, what I figured out. Now, all the details of why this happened and the relationship between Diamond and, and Rachel I'm going to ask you to, you know, to to watch the uh, the movie and, and get the book because it's it's complicated and it's it'll make your head spin. Um, tell me this though, um, did did this switch happen with the uh, knowledge and approval of of the attorneys uh, led by Benjamin Crump? Well, first of all, I can confirm for you I have the evidence that's in the film that Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon's mother, knew about the witness switch. A hundred percent, she knew about the witness switch, and she did not come forward to alert authorities or the public. Uh, Sabrina Fulton, along with both Diamond Eugene and Rachel Gentile, should come clean, come forward, and uh, let everybody know what they knew. They're the ones that would know more intimately for sure if Benjamin Crump, the family attorney, uh, knew about this. Now, he, uh, Diamond actually called Benjamin Crump two days before Rachel's uh, testimony. So uh, you got to kind of wonder... Uh, what they were talking about, uh, the fact that the prosecution uh, helped Rachel get through that interview, the fact that Rachel actually found a tape, which you saw in the trailer. There's a tape where Rachel tells the prosecutor six times, I feel guilty, I feel guilty, I feel real guilty. They say, why do you feel guilty? She says, I ain't know about it. He says, huh? She says, I ain't know about it. So she actually tells them that she she's faking the whole thing, and they just ignore her. So... These are some of the things that have to be answered. I can't finger the prosecutors or, or Benjamin Crump that they knew for sure, but once you see the film and, and read the book, uh, you're going to be pretty shocked that these two girls could have pulled this off without them knowing about it, especially since Rachel confessed and her story kept changing over and over. Uh, but Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon's mother, I can tell you, knew about it, and uh, and she, she hid it, unfortunately. And... Uh, I don't think at the time they understood, like, if we, if we proceed with Rachel Gentile testifying, it could lead to this uh, 33% spike in homicides all over the country. No one has suffered more from this Trayvon hoax uh, than the black youth of America. That is so. That is one hundred percent true. That is exactly right. Um, we're talking to Joel Gilbert. He is the author of the book and the and the uh, producer of the film, The Trayvon Hoax: Unmasking the Witness Fraud That Divided America. Joel, uh, you said something in your last uh, commentary about um, Diamond Eugene not wanting to come forward and not wanting to testify because she knew that Trayvon had killed George Zimmerman, or excuse me, that Trayvon had attacked George Zimmerman premeditatedly uh, that led, of course, to the fatal encounter. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, uh, Diamond, uh, I, I accessed her social media, and what's, uh, what's shocking and what I have throughout the film, uh, her social media, actually, she's tweeting uh, the entire time during her relationship with Trayvon. She's tweeting at the same moment after Trayvon is shot, and she tweets out things like, uh, 
uh, it might look like, but I'm heavy. My eyes are hurting. These are just kind of urban English for I'm, uh, I'm really worried. I'm, I'm crying. And then she keeps calling Trayvon again and again, and then she calls her friend, and she and her friend say a prayer on the phone, and she tweets out, she says, uh, prayers changes things. I got hope. So she knew something bad was about to happen, and we can tell from her tweets. The fact that she's frantically calling Trayvon again and again and her friends, and she's even tweeting that she's praying, means she knew that something was about to go down. Now, when she talks to Crump, she acts like she says things like, oh, you know, I thought it was just a fight. I don't know anything. Maybe his phone fell on the grass. I don't know. So she's very nonchalant. But from her tweets and her phone records, you can tell that she knew something bad was about to happen, and she would only so know So this that. is presumably, Joel, this is presumably yeah. the, the time that she's on the phone with and tweeting with Trayvon as he is, if I remember the case correctly, circling back around uh, and sneaking up behind George Zimmerman to start this attack that, that, that led to their fight, which led to the, to the gunshot. Right, and she uh, she was on the phone with him off and on most of the time uh, when uh, first uh, Trayvon was lighting up, smoking pot. What happened was Zimmerman slows down and makes a phone call like he was instructed to do by the police. He wasn't on a patrol or anything like that. He was just going to Target, and the police had told the neighborhood, watch if you see anybody hanging around, and Trayvon was standing between two townhomes lighting up. So he called the cops like he and many other people had done, a non-emergency number. Uh, I think Trayvon saw him and was probably pissed off. My my theory of the case, I don't have the proof of this. It's a theory, though, based on all the circumstantial evidence in terms of Trayvon's motivation, was that it was a marijuana-related event. It was a drug-related event. Uh, Zimmerman, he thought Zimmerman was snitching on him. He approaches Tray, uh, Zimmerman's car and sees that he's not a cop, he's not security, he's on the phone, and in the the world of urban Miami pot smokers, the worst thing you can be is a snitch. So uh, Trayvon then leaves the area where Zimmerman's in his car, and he's still talking to Diamond on the phone. We got the phone records. And he's probably shocked that Zimmerman gets out of his car and then walks back to his car, and then he approaches him and says, uh, what's your problem? And that's very typical of, you know, why are you snitching on me? And he immediately attacks him, and, uh, and he doesn't let up. He keeps pounding his head in the ground. Because, as you know from Ferguson, snitches get stitches. I think he identified uh, Zimmerman as a snitch. And I found a text message from Trayvon to one of his friends three months earlier where he said he was fighting a guy. And he said, I'm going to go fight him again. And his friend said, why are you going to keep fighting this guy? And he said, because he snitched on me and he, hasn't, he ain't bleeding enough of me, only his nose. So he's telling his friend three months earlier, there's a guy that snitched on him. And he busted his nose, and it's not enough blood. He's got to get him even more. So it's it's quite similar, and that's my conclusion. My theory of the case is Trayvon attacked Zimmerman because he thought he was a snitch, and he was very for calling high the, the police time. for calling the police when he saw him lighting up. Correct. As you say. Yeah, yeah, real quick, Joel, because we're short on time here. But you mentioned, or at least I saw in the trailer. I've not read the book yet or seen the entirety of the film, obviously, but uh, you mentioned your conversation with George Zimmerman, and he reveals for the first time Trayvon Martin's last words before the fatal gunshot. And, uh, and, and you can tell us what those last words were, and can you tell me the significance of them at all? Yeah, very significant. Uh, Trayvon, he never even told his attorneys this, because he, he didn't know the significance of it at the time, but uh, uh, Trayvon 
asked George to, he said, please tell Mama Alicia I'm sorry. And Mama Alicia is Alicia Stanley, was Trayvon's stepmother for 12 years, and uh, he wanted George to let him know, let her know that he was sorry. So I think Trayvon in that moment understood. That this is as he wrong. lay there dying. This is after the shot, Correct. as he lay there dying. Okay, go ahead. Correct. Yeah, I think uh, Trayvon understood that he, he did something wrong and was very sorry about it. I'm sure his stepmother told him not to get in fights. And so uh, I also talk about in the film that Trayvon really was a good kid for a long time. His life went into kind of a dark direction where he was dealing guns and heavy marijuana use, uh, you know, fighting because of the breakup of his of his home. So I do have some sympathy for Trayvon about how he got to that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, it even, believe it or not, this case, I connected to the Parkland thing because Trayvon had been suspended for three times three times at that time, and the police had caught him twice. Uh, so when Jonathan Good came out of his apartment and told Trayvon, hey, I'm calling the police, you need to stop beating up this guy, and Trayvon kept beating him up. I think Trayvon probably thought, hey, I'm already suspended from school. The police can't do anything to me, because that's what they did. If you got caught by the police, they suspended you from school. So you get the whole story. You know, Go to the TrayvonHoax.com. You can live stream, buy the DVD and the book. Really uh, interesting. I would love to hear more about your conversation with George Zimmerman. He, of course, became uh, public enemy number one in black America after that event. And to this day, there are still so many uh, people who feel like he did stalk and murder Trayvon Martin, the innocent hoodie-wearing kid who was killed just for being black in a in, in the wrong neighborhood. Uh, we got to read it. We got to watch it. Uh, the book, again, uh, by uh, Joel Gilbert is The Trayvon Hoax, Unmasking the Witness Fraud that Divided America. Uh, I've tweet out, tweeted out that trailer. And uh, once again, you can go to the website there as well, thetrayvonhoax.com. Joel Gilbert, thank you so much for shedding some light on this for us and bringing all of this up because it does. It, it didn't. Uh, this story didn't end in 2012 when the shooting happened or 2013 when the trial happened. It is impacting uh, race relations in this country today, so it's very timely. Yeah, can I give you one, one last word? Is Trayvon's legacy was stolen by left-wing activists for their agendas. The real legacy, the true legacy of Trayvon Martin is a teachable moment that the problem for black youth is not armed white men in the streets. It's the lack of strong black men in the home to give them guidance and keep them away from drugs and gangs. That's very well said, Joel. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Joe Gilbert, uh, filmmaker and author. And that's what Larry Elbert, uh, or Larry Elbert, Larry Elder says on a regular basis as well, talking about the lack of fathers, uh, in, in black homes, uh, for, for youth to, uh, to learn from and to to be you know to to have as role models, uh, and I'll talk about that on Larry Elder Show tonight. In fact, we may talk to Joel Gilbert again with a little bit more time. But we have to get out now. We'll come back up with a very come back with a very short segment to wrap it up here on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Bob France here on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. All right, 1057, very short on time here. We'll try to squeeze in two quick calls before we're done. Tracy in Cleveland Heights. You're on the air. Tracy, go ahead. Hi, I uh, was responding to the comment about Merriam-Webster changing the definition of day. Oh, sure, I sure, go ahead. Tables. I wait tables, and I I actually love my job. I love taking care of all kinds of people, and I try to treat everybody with respect and honor. And one day I was challenged by a family where they kept referring to they, and I kept looking for the multiple children, 
and there was only one beautiful little girl in front of me, and I couldn't figure out how I was supposed to respond. And it put me on the spot, and it made me feel like I was doing something wrong when I wasn't. And um, it's how did just, you handle it? it I I just try, I did my best. I just tried to gloss over it, but I'm sure that they could see on my face I was confused, and I I didn't want to be offensive. They may have re- responded that way, like I was being offensive, but I wasn't. I love all people. <laughs> it's just the reality was there was one child. Right, and right. I just, I just, I just let them be, and I did, did my best to take care of them, and um, but they put me on the spot, and I found that kind of difficult. When the reality is, there's one person there, and why am I supposed to change definitions right. and pretend? <laughs> and the answer, the answer is you're not, Tracy, and that's why this yeah. is a problem. And I'm so glad you gave us a perfect anecdotal example of why. Uh, this is so crazy what Merriam-Webster and what they are trying to do to our culture all the way down to our language. I thank you for the call. I'm not going to get to my last call. Uh, apologies for that. Uh, join me again tonight at uh, 7 for the Larry Elder Show. I'll be sitting in for the stage again, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Enjoy the silence.